Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to our special program series. The date is Tuesday, June 24, 2014, and we're doing this via the telephone. And we're going to look into the causes of World War One, and who else can do that better than our friend Ira Fistel. So, again, if you guys want to mute, uh, star six, unmute is star six. So without further ado, Ira, the telephone is yours, and welcome. Well, thank you, Bob. Uh, I'm not going to start with the causes of World War I. Um, I'll get to that. But what I am going to start with is something about the study of history. Uh, we ask a number of questions in history. Uh, sometimes I don't know that they all get asked, but these are the questions that... Uh, I believe should be asked, and I think generally are asked. The first question in history is, what happened? Now, that sounds like an easy question to answer, right? Uh, John Smith uh, fell over, uh, stubbed his toe and fell and then broke his arm. But sometimes it's not an easy question to answer. What happens if there are two witnesses Say, you, say there was an accident and you're in the street corner and you saw uh, or thought you saw one car, a brown car, run into a white car. And then let's say somebody else is on a different corner looking at it from a different way and he says, no, it wasn't the brown car that ran into the white car, it was the white car that hit the brown car. How do you know what actually happened? And now, not often, you know, in history you have eyewitnesses who are in the past and things get forgotten things get changed around and misremembered how always do you know what happened and the fact is we don't always know what happened more often than not there's a question about what happened well that's the first step in any historical investigation trying to find out what happened now, let's talk about World War I, for example. There is now no person alive who experienced anything about World War I, uh, either as a civilian or as a combatant. No one is still alive. The last living person that I know of uh, was a young woman at the time in Great Britain, and she... Uh, served coffee and uh, things to Air Force, British Air Force people during World War I. Well, you know, it's 100, and, what, 100 years ago. Uh, you'd have to be at minimum 110 to even remember anything about the war. So uh, we don't have the advantage of eyewitnesses anymore. So then you have to trust written, uh, written uh, accounts, you have to trust sometimes you'll have a recorded account or something. But how do you know what really happened? Right, that's the first question. Second thing, it's not enough just to know what happened. Why did it happen? What caused it? Why did it happen? And a corollary of that is, why did it happen when it happened, not before or after? And that's a very, very important question to ask. Uh, for example, we, in the case of World War I, 
the tensions had been building up for years, for uh, at least 10 years before the war broke out. There had been crisis after crisis involving the great powers and some of the smaller nations in Europe. And yet none of those conflicts led to a continent-wide or worldwide war. Why did the conflict in 1914 explode into a wild worldwide war? What was different? What changed? Why didn't it happen before? Why did it not happen after? Why did it happen when it happened? Another question is, who made it happen? Who's responsible? And, of course, that is extremely difficult to prove, and sometimes it is, you know, it is not honestly wanted to, somebody doesn't honestly want to prove what happened or who caused it. Uh, I've been reading a very interesting book about this very topic. It's called Catastrophe 1914, Europe Goes to War. It's written by a British author whose name is Max Hastings. And he concludes at the end of the book that the burden of guilt for the First World War must logically lie, and on the evidence that we have, primarily on Germany. You wouldn't want to, you know, you wouldn't find that in a German text of about 1933. No way. Uh, you might not find it in a another text today written by somebody else again we don't always know John. sometimes we can't figure it out some and sometimes we'll never actually know what happened or why it happened or who made it happen or all those other questions what's more there are subdivisions of all this under what uh, under why did it happen what material forces, or what, I'm sorry, what natural forces contributed to whatever happened? By natural forces, I mean things like geography, the weather, etc. What natural forces had something to do, for example, with the beginning of World War I? And I'll talk about that as we go on a little bit, uh, a little further down the road. What social factors contributed to what happened. In this case, national origins, differences in religion, differences in language, differences in traditions. What technical factors contributed to what happened? And in the case of World War I, some of the technical factors were the incredibly rapid change in the uh, technology of warfare. Remember that there had not been a general European war in 99 years. The defeat of Napoleon at Waterloo in 1815 was the last time prior to 1914 that there was a general conflict within Europe. But between 1815 and 1914, just think of the changes that occurred. Among other things, the development of steam power, the development of automatic weapons, the development of the railway, uh, which was a huge factor, ability to move large numbers of people and huge amounts of freight 
long distances quickly. Not a factor in the Napoleonic Wars, etc., etc., etc. So all of these questions are part of what history tries to tell us, tries to teach us. And what's the reason why we want to know all this? Well, we cannot have much impact on the future if we don't know the past. If we don't know where we are and how we got there, how can we possibly know where we're going and how to get where we want to go rather than stumble into something as Europe stumbled into war in 1914? So history is important. Uh, I've taught history for many years. Uh, my degree, my uh, master's degree is in history. And I hear people say every once in a while, well, history is not important. Uh, it's, it's irrelevant. Why bother to study history? I, why should I care what happened when Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo uh, on June 28, 1914? Well, the answer is uh, the assassination led to the um, deaths over the next four years of at least 15 million people. And over the a period of years since then, since 1918, the end of the First World War, things that were set in motion by the First World War have probably accounted for the deaths of at least another 50 to 60 million people. And the tensions that were created by what happened in the First World War are still very much with us today. Um, history far from being irrelevant, is important. And I come back to the famous comment by George Santayana, those who do not know history are compelled to repeat it. If we don't know what happened in the past, how can we avoid what we don't want to happen in the future? Okay, given that is the prologue, how far back can we trace the roots of what happened in World War I? 1914, of course, was the year the war began. But the background of it goes back further than that. How about 1871? What happened in 1871? Germany, which had not been a nation state, was finally consolidated into a nation-state in the center of Europe under the governance of an emperor. Why was that important? Well, we'll talk about all this as we go on. <clears throat> but how come Germany did not become a nation-state until 1871? We go back to the history of the nation-states in Europe. The first country to consolidate into a nation-state was Spain in 1492. Why did Spain become a nation-state in 1492? Why was it the first? Well, that was the year that Ferdinand of Aragon and Isabella of Castile married and joined their two kingdoms to create a unified Spain. But Spain was known for centuries as a region that had lots of little castles. Each one held a little bit of ground. And there were 
constant wars between them. Uh, there were three major different ethnic groups of people in Spain. There were the Christians, Catholics. There were the Muslims, the Moors. And there were the Jews, all of whom were important parts of Spain's population. But Spain had something else going for it that encouraged the wiping out of all those little castles and little protectorates. Uh, and that was the fact that Spain occupies a peninsula. The only other thing on the peninsula is Portugal. And the Iberian Peninsula has clear natural boundaries. And at a time before steam power and before uh, power of uh, its internal combustion engine, before aircraft, those natural boundaries were a like a container. And all the Spaniards of various different kinds, including the Basques, who to this day don't consider themselves the same as other Spaniards, they were all in the same peninsula. And the only other country on it is Portugal, which was very much like Spain and uh, sometimes in the same hands. So there was a great deal of reason why Spain would come together. The event that triggered it was the expulsion of the last of the Moors from Spain in, 18, in 1492. At the, the, last, uh, the last Moorish hold in Spain was Seville, and when the Moors were driven out, it left only the Christians and the Jews. Immediately, the Spaniards under Ferdinand and Isabella came to the conclusion that they should expel all the Jews from Spain. Why? Because they were afraid that if the Moors tried to come back, the Jews would join with the Moors and overthrow the new Christian Spanish kingdom. And so out of fear, not out of anything that was about to happen really, but out of fear of what might happen, Spain expelled its entire Jewish population. All right, what happened as Spain became a nation state with a more or less homogenous people? Not entirely, but more or less. And with at least one religion and, and uh, for the most part, a common or close to common language. Well, the Spanish Empire dominated the 16th century, the 1500s. Spain explored the world, set up colonies in, in uh, North America, in South America, ruled parts of Europe, for example, the Netherlands. They were the Spanish Netherlands in the 16th century. Spain's sea power dominated the world at that point. And Spain became, through the gold and silver and uh, colonies that they had, uh, through rap, rap, what would you say, rapine of the resources of, say, Mexico and uh, other countries, Spain became a very wealthy country. What happened to Spain? Well, if the 16th century belonged to Spain, the 17th century did not. The Spanish Empire began to decline toward the end of the 16th century with the defeat of the Spanish Armada, its great naval force, and the revolt of the Netherlands. 
In fact, the reason why the Armada was sent north and ran into the English was to put down the rebellion by the Netherlands. And what caused the rebellion by the Netherlands? Largely the effect of Spanish taxation on a new kind of people, a commercial people, people who lived by buying and selling and trading. And what exacerbated that was the Protestant Reformation. Most of the Dutch were Protestants, many of them Calvinists, just as they are today. The Spanish Catholics had their own ideas of how to run a country, and they worked on a tax system that worked in Spain. But when it was applied to a commercial country like Holland, like Netherlands, it was absolutely ruinous, and the Dutch revolted, partly because of the taxation and partly because of the religious war between Protestants and Catholics. And so the Spanish Empire began to decline at the end of the 16th century. Which country became the great power of the 17th century in Europe? France. Why? Well, France has a large amount of territory, and most of that territory, not all of it, but most of it, has the kind of natural borders that Spain has. On the south, the Pyrenees Mountains divide France from Spain. On the west and on the northwest, the Atlantic Ocean and the English Channel divide France from any other country. On the east, southeast rather, the southeast, the Alps divide France from Switzerland and Italy. Only on the north and northeast does France not have pretty secure natural boundaries. And that, plus the spread of the French language to all those areas within the country, um, and the establishment of a single monarch in France, uh, led to France becoming the great nation-state of the 17th century, the 1600s. That was the time when France sent its explorers to North America, to Caribbean, to Africa, to the to Asia. French uh, French influence extended all over the world. And of course, the king who was the leader of all this is the, the great Sun King Louis the Fourteenth. He may have bankrupted the country. Uh, <laughs> and left a, a wreck behind him. But for that time, for that period of time, of the last half of the 17th century, France was the dominant power of the world. And now we come to the beginning of the 18th century. Uh, yeah, the 18th century. What happened that changed everything in the 18th century? Well, Britain had begun to become a great naval power with the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And in the 18th century, a great war was fought. It is actually the First World War. It was called in Europe the Seven Years' War. In the North America, we call it the French and Indian War. But it was fought in Europe, in North America, in Central America, in Africa, and in Asia between France and Britain for control of those colonial empires. And the, the British won that war 
1763, the French colonial empire was drastically reduced and, in fact, uh, almost eliminated in North America. And it was uh, a second French um, uh, colonial empire was then founded, and the British knocked that one off in 1815 when they defeated Napoleon at Waterloo, finally. So in the 17th century, France dominated in the 18th, especially the second half of the 18th century, Britain became the premier power of the world. And once again, it was based on control of the seas, the British Navy. Well, that lasted from at least 1763 until at least 1871. Britain's empire lasted longer and became bigger and more powerful because Britain had some other things happen at the same time. The Industrial Revolution began primarily in Britain and gave Britain a tremendous advantage over everybody else in the world, in wealth and in trading and in power. Uh, the Industrial Revolution, beginning in about 1740 or so, carried Britain with it. And by the beginning of the 19th century, and uh, especially after 1815 and the defeat of Napoleon, Britain became the one great power. At one point in the 19th century, Britain controlled one-fourth of the world's territory and one-fourth of the entire world's population was under British rule. It was probably the largest empire ever, and it probably will remain the largest empire ever created. So Britain's domination lasted until 1871. Then came the challenge. Now, I mentioned that uh, in the 18th century there were religious wars, and in the 17th century particularly. In 1618, the Protestants of the North, that is to say northern Germany, Scandinavia, and Britain, and the Catholics of the South, southern Germany, Spain, uh, France, you know, fought each other for 30 years. A war between Christians, between the Protestants and the Catholics. And a lot of the fighting was done in Germany. And the war was so destructive that Germany did not recover for 200 years from the damage caused by that war. Germany could not reunite during that 200 years because it had a number of rival principalities, Hanover, Brandenburg, which became Prussia, uh, Bavaria, and each of these areas had its own ruling family, and each of these areas had its own interests, and they could not get together. But in the 19th century, again, technology came to the fore. Germany has few natural boundaries. It does have a natural boundary in the south, but the eastern plain is absolutely flat and wide open, and Germany has only a partial border with France um, that's defensible, no border with Holland defensible, no border with Belgium defensible, no natural borders. 
But what happened was, again, the Industrial Revolution and the rise of steam power. And Germany became increasingly an economic power even before it was unified. Two wars came, came in the latter part of the 19th century that led to German reunification. The first one was in 1866, when Germany defeated Austria-Hungary, the empire to its immediate south and east. And then five years later, Germany defeated France in the Franco-Prussian War. It wasn't actually Germany, it was Prussia. But after the war, Prussia became the most important state in Germany and led to German reunification under a emperor of the Hohenzollern family, which was the ruling family of Prussia. And the first empire, emperor was Kaiser Wilhelm I. Kaiser is simply the German translation of Caesar. So uh, they were recalling the Roman Empire uh, started by Augustus Caesar. The Russians had the same idea. The autocrat of Russia is, was known as the Tsar. Tsar was the Russian version of Caesar. So <laughs> you had Caesars and you had Tsars and you had Tsar and you had uh, Kaisers, and they all are the same word. Meanwhile, Russia was always on the fringes, and in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, Russia was preoccupied mostly by trying to tame the Asian invasions of the Mongols and the Tartars. And, and uh, the eastern front of Russia was the center of the Russian activity, less so than Western Europe. Only after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, after France had invaded Russia, only then did Russia turn more towards the rest of Europe on a consistent basis and become more of a participant in Western European affairs. So, the lesson here is the unification of Germany and at the same time the unification of another nation-state further south, Italy. Italy had natural borders all right, but what it didn't have was a unified government because right in the middle of, of Italy is Rome and the lands that belonged at that time to the Roman Catholic Church. And it wasn't possible for Italy to combine as a, as a nation all of its different parts as long as the church controlled Rome and the center of the country. But in 1871, the Italian Risorgimento, which means resurgence, uh, finally led to the unification of Italy under a king, Victor Emmanuel, Vittorio Emmanuel. So that by 1871, there were nation states in all corners of Europe. England, of course, with its islands and its uh, Scottish and Irish and Welsh areas of those islands. Uh, England be became Britain as early as, seven, I think it's 1707. And uh, Scotland is now going to have a referendum to withdraw from the United Kingdom. I hope they don't. I don't see any reason why they'd want to. But anyway, uh, Britain had a unified government. 
England had, as I said before, developed great naval power beginning in the end of the 15th, under the end of the 16th century, under Elizabeth I. And England became, Britain became, a, an, a nation state, but apart from the rest of Europe, because Britain had the English Channel and the North Sea to protect itself from land armies trying to come across uh, to invade it. Britain has not been successfully invaded by anybody since William the Conqueror in 1066. And that was a great part of the rise of Britain to world ascendancy. So you had Britain, you had France, Spain was much less empowered by then, but you had Germany, and then in the east you had Russia. And then you have Austria-Hungary. Now I haven't talked about Austria-Hungary because Austria-Hungary was an empire, but nothing like the unified empires of England and Germany and uh, France. Austria-Hungary had a polyglot population. The Austrians are um, Germanic. The Hungarians are Magyars. The Serbs, in Serbia was part of the Austro-Hungarian territory, were, are and were Slavic. And so were the Poles. So that Austria-Hungary was a, a melange of different peoples having very little in common with each other and usually fighting among each other. Austria-Hungary inherited what had been part of the Ottoman Empire. The Turks invaded Europe in 1419, captured Constantinople, and began working up through the Balkan, Balkan Peninsula, one country at a time, aiming for Vienna. And not until the siege of Vienna in the 1530s was Europe finally safe from the threat of an invasion by the Muslims from Turkey. Since that date, since the siege of Vienna, no country outside Europe has, had a, has been a threat within Europe. Europe, in other words, became a series of rival states dominating everybody else in the world, but rivals with each other. All right, so that's the background of what happened in 1871. Germany immediately took its place as an economic power. It had been a military power before when it was Prussia. It was a military power when it was Prussia under Frederick the Great in the 18th century. But Prussia was very small, and now Germany was a big country, unified country. Everything was all right for a while. But the German Kaiser hired as his foreign minister the famous man, uh, famous uh, statesman, uh, who am I thinking of? I know his name as well as I know my own. Uh, just a second, I'll get this. Uh, Bismarck. Bismarck. Out of von Bismarck. Bismarck saw that Germany was wedged in between three other powers, France on the west, Russia on the east, and Austria-Hungary on the southwest. And he foresaw that the great threat to Germany was an alliance, a military alliance, between France and Russia 
and or between France and Austria-Hungary. And so for a number of years, Bismarck worked as hard as he could to keep France and Russia and Austria-Hungary apart. And he was successful. But then the old Kaiser died, William I. The second Kaiser didn't last very long and was ineffective and I think probably crazy. Anyway, uh, he didn't last long. And the grandson of the Kaiser, the first Kaiser, Wilhelm II, came to power in Germany. Wilhelm II was a, a character. First of all, he was related to practically everybody else in Europe because the royal families of Europe were all intermarried with each other. The Queen of England, Victoria, had nine children and a great number of grandchildren. And her children and grandchildren married into all the royal families of Europe. So that in, 18, in 1900 or 1901, when Edward VII, Victoria's oldest son, became king of England, he was the uncle of the Kaiser of Germany. And they were all related to the family of the, of the Romanovs in Russia because the Tsar's wife had been a German princess. So you have the anomaly of all these rival states, all ruled by cousins and, and nephews and uh, relatives. All right. Germany, under Kaiser Wilhelm, was not content to be an economic power. The Kaiser had a withered arm, Kaiser Wilhelm II, and it prevented him from being a military hero, which was what he really wanted to be. He was overwhelmed by a panoply and the, you know, the military uniforms and that kind of thing. And he sought to be uh, a great leader. Unfortunately, he wasn't. One of the first things he did was to fire Bismarck and become his own foreign minister. That was a tremendous disaster. Bismarck was let go in 1890. Within four years, the Kaiser had blundered into forming, uh, into the causing the formation of an alliance between France and Russia, exactly the thing that Bismarck had been trying to prevent for years. What did an alliance between France and Russia mean? Germany was then caught in the middle of Europe with a great power on either side of her. And in case of war, that meant that Germany might have to fight two major powers at one time in opposite directions with its armies back-to-back on its own territory. That was obviously not the kind of situation that Germany would have liked to have had, and because of Bismarck's diplomacy, did not face until the Kaiser. Well, that was only the first of Kaiser Wilhelm's boners, a few years later, in 1898, <laughs> the Kaiser decided that he needed to build a navy that would be competitive with Britain's. Now, Britain lived by her navy. 
The Navy was everything to Britain because on the continent, of course, he had nowhere near the number of soldiers and the quality of armies that the continental powers had. Britain lived by trade overseas and by commerce and by the power of the British Navy and had since the 18th century. The Kaiser made the flat-out blunder of trying to challenge the power of the British Navy. He didn't need to do it. Germany was a great land power to begin with and an economic power that could rival Britain if given time. And in fact, Germany today is still the predominant economic power in Europe. But the Kaiser had dreams of glory, and so he began building a German navy called the High Seas Fleet, which would be powerful enough to challenge the British Navy. What did Britain do? What do you expect it did? Britain did two things. First, it built its navy even bigger and stronger. The British developed the first modern battleship, the name of which was the Dreadnought. And after that, uh, battleships in general became known as Dreadnoughts. The second thing that Britain did was to start looking around Europe for allies. Now, traditionally, France had been an enemy of Britain. Britain and France had fought on and off all the way back to the time of Joan of Arc, before that to the time of Henry V, and before that to the time of William the Conqueror. Britain and France had never been close nations. But when Britain looked around Europe, who was there that they could ally with against Germany? Russia? too far away and had no military significance for Britain, uh, or little military significance. But right there on the doorstep was France, bordering Germany. And with a British uh, alliance with France, Germany would have to attack France before it could even think of attacking Britain across the English Channel. So that France became a kind of a uh, first what would you say, a tripwire, a first defense line for Britain. And that's the way the British saw it. And so, in meanwhile, in 1894, I mentioned the Franco-Russian alliance, Britain joined in 1904, and the three nations, France, Britain, and Russia, signed an agreement called the Triple Entente, the Triple Entente did not obligate anybody to go to war on behalf of anybody else, but it created a unified uh, interest, and all three countries subscribed to it. On the other hand, Germany began looking for allies, but France on one side and Russia on the other were out of the question. They were now allied with each other. The only place Germany could look for an ally was Austria-Hungary, to the south and east. And so began the dual alliance, which later was joined by Italy and became the triple alliance. Italy, however, uh, was a bit of a maverick here. Italy and Austria-Hungary were great rivals, and Italy had no interest in going to war on behalf of anything that would benefit Austria-Hungary. In fact, Italy wanted some of Austria-Hungary's territory, which uh, had been Italian, 
Austria-Hungary occupied the port of Trieste, for example, and Italy wanted it back. So that Italy was technically a part of the Triple Triple Alliance, rather, but did not fight with the Triple Alliance. And in fact, in 1915, went to war on the side of the Allies, the Entente powers. All right, that's the background, or part of the background. The The rest of the background is what happened to the Ottoman Empire. The Turks, who had threatened Vienna in the, 15th, in the 16th century, gradually receded, uh, gradually became weaker and weaker, and had lost territory and lost power. They became known, the Ottoman Empire became known as the sick man of Europe, because it was uh, declining while the other powers were advancing. Well, what happened to the territories occupied by the uh, uh, Turks, Serbia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, uh, what are some of the others? Uh, Anyway, that that whole part of it, what became eventually Yugoslavia, all those Balkan countries, many of whom had Slavic majorities, such as Serbia. And Austria-Hungary looked at Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina as territory that they could occupy and uh, take over and benefit from. And in 1908, Austria-Hungary annexed uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. This infuriated the Serbs who wanted out from Austria-Hungary themselves, and the Serbs are Slavs, not only that, but they are Russian Orthodox in religion. And Russia, under the Tsar, saw a chance to become the great protector of all the South Slavs. Serbia made an alliance with Russia. And all of this led to what happened in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, in, on June 28, 1914. That's the background. The Balkans are seething. The Serbs want independence from Austria-Hungary. They, the Bosnians and the Herzegovinians want out from Austria. They all want a unified South Slav nation backed by Russia. Into this cauldron of the Balkans came the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, Sophie Chatek. Um, She was a commoner, and her marriage with him caused uh, consternation in Vienna among the aristocracy there, because she was a commoner. She had no royal blood. And they forced her to not walk in a procession with her husband because she wasn't worthy of it. She couldn't be empress. She wasn't a royal personage. They loved each other, and they had some kids, and they had a wonderful family life together. But she was never accepted by the powers that be. By 1914, the emperor of Austria-Hungary, with Franz Joseph, had been on the throne for, I don't know, 40 or 50 years. He was a very old man and a very cantankerous person. Uh, And Franz Ferdinand was the accepted heir to the throne. 
Not that he was the first heir. He wasn't the son of the emperor. He was a nephew. The emperor's son, Rudolf, had been the heir. Ah, but what happened to Rudolf Habsburg? In 1889, he and his Italian mistress, Maria Vetseva, uh, went off to a hunting lodge called Meyerling outside Vienna and had a tryst together, and he shot her and then himself and committed suicide. The great scandal of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the late 19th century. That left Franz Ferdinand as the heir to the throne. The uh, remarkable thing about Franz Ferdinand was he understood the needs and the ambitions of the South Slavs, and he realized that the Balkans were a tinderbox, and he wrote uh, when Russia was backing the Slavs, I will never lead a war against Russia. It's wrong, and it can only result in one of three things. Either the end of the Habsburg rule in Austria, the end of the Romanov rule in Russia, or the end of both empires. And guess how prescient he was? Because the war that broke out in Sarajevo did end both the Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires and was the end of the ruling families there. Well, Franz Ferdinand wanted to come to Sarajevo despite all the warnings because he wanted to show the authority of the Austrian state. But he also was sympathetic towards the Slavs. And I guess he didn't think that uh, he was in danger of going there, although he should have known better because there had been at least six or seven assassination attempts against Austrian officials. The Empress of Austria, the estranged wife of Franz Joseph, actually was assassinated in 1898. She had been Rudolf Habsburg's mother, and uh, she was assassinated trying to get on and off a boat someplace in Italy, I think. Anyway, uh, other Russian, other Austrian-Hungarian officials had been uh, assassinated, and it was no surprise that Sarajevo was such a hot spot. But Franz Ferdinand and Sophie did go. The authorities, local authorities in Bosnia, paid no attention to the threat of an assassination. I have a picture in Max Hastings' book of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie and their party minutes before the assassination attempt. They're sitting in an open car, wide open, no protection whatsoever. Well, that brings us to the details of the assassination. On June 27th, uh, they were there in in the Sarajevo, and it happened to be their wedding anniversary. And there was a big state dinner when they celebrated their uh, anniversary, their 14th. The next morning, there had been a published. Uh, what would you call it, plan of the day. So everybody knew where they would be at any time of the day. And in accordance with that published schedule, uh, the Archduke traveled with his wife in a motorcade headed for the town hall. Uh, Hastings reports that at least seven would-be assassins had stationed themselves along the route. One of them was a Bosnian kid, 19 years old, 
whose name was, you'll never forget it, Gabrilo Princip, P-R-I-N-C-I-P. Princip was a shrimp, small man, uh, didn't have any, uh, what would you say, didn't have any charisma whatsoever. Uh, all he had was a burning desire to free the South Slavs from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He and two other young men, he was 19 years old, by the way, he and two other young men, hardly out of their boyhood, uh, were influenced by a Serbian nationalist organization called the Black Hand. But it's never been proved that they were agents of any kind. They appeared to have possibly acted entirely on their own. Prince had bought himself a pistol and went to Sarajevo. He had known uh, Serbia well because he'd lived there for a couple of years. And he planted himself on the bank of a river uh, where the motorcade was supposed to come by. All right. The motorcade was on its way to the town hall. It never got there without a without something happening. Somebody threw a bomb at the car carrying the royal couple. It bounced off the hood before it exploded. And when it did explode, it injured two members of the Archduke's party, but neither the Archduke nor his wife were hurt. They went on to the town hall where they had to listen to a bunch of speeches for a while. At this point, when they were ready to leave, Franz Ferdinand, the Archduke, told his party that he wanted to go see the two officials who had been injured by the bomb. The car had a driver, of course, and the general who was in charge of the security protections, who was a man named Potiorek, who had poo-pooed any of these uh, security protections. He says, who needs to be afraid of kids? Uh, was sitting in the front seat directing the driver where to go. And the driver was supposed to go to see where the uh, the hospital, where the guards were who were uh, who had been shot, and not shot, uh, but it did during the bomb explosion. But Patiorek saw that the car was going the wrong way. He ordered the car to stop. All right, the driver stopped the car. But it turns out that this open car this luxury 1914 automobile, had no reverse gear. I couldn't believe it when I read this. But uh, it couldn't go in reverse. So if for the car to back up, somebody had to get out and push. <laughs> well, they pushed the car backwards onto the Apple key. The Apple key is the name of the, uh, the key or uh, dock where Gabrilo Princip just happened to be standing holding his pistol. He was within a few feet, as it happened, of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie. He picked up his pistol, he held it up in the air, took aim, and fired two shots. Only two. The Remarkable thing about this is that he was seized immediately after by the crowd, never got off another shot, but with two shots from a hand pistol, he killed two people. Max Hastings in his book says that that was remarkable, 
because a small caliber pistol is not reliable to fire a, uh, you know, a uh, fatal wound. And often small pistol shot wounds are not fatal. But these two both were. The empress was, not the empress, but the uh, heir to the emperor, Sophie, was shot immediately. She, she died right away. And the prince, uh, the, not the prince, but the archduke, uh, was shot, lived a few minutes, lived long enough to say, Sophie, don't die, stay alive for our children. By that time, she was probably dead already. And within minutes, he died. Um, this gave Austria a pretext, a pretext to punish Serbia and put an end to the South Slav independence movement as Austria saw it. But Austria could not move unless she had backing from somebody else. And who was the somebody else? Who was Austria-Hungary's ally? Germany and the Kaiser. And World War I would not have happened, or probably would not have happened, if Germany had not given Austria-Hungary the green light to go attack Serbia. But Germany apparently believed, and according to Hastings, uh, was in control of militarists under the Kaiser, who did believe that they could win any war in Europe, and they wanted to beat France. Because with France on one side and Russia on the other, they didn't want to have to fight a two-front uh, two war. Now here we have to get back to the German strategy. The chief of staff of the German army up until 1910 was Alfred von Schlieffen. And Schlieffen saw the two-front war problem. After all, it had been 20 years since, uh, almost 20 years since uh, Bismarck was fired. And he came up with a plan. He saw Russia as a backward country that would take a long time to get in shape to fight once fighting started. So he devised a plan to beat France in 40 days and then have the troops available to fight Russia on the Eastern Front. Totally separate. In other words, if you couldn't separate the two sides by war, by space, you could separate them by time, by defeating France first and then fighting Russia. The Schlieffen plan called for France to be invaded by massive German forces, and to have the forces uh, practically, he said, to have their, their sleeves in the Atlantic Ocean, or the English Channel, invading France not across the defended border in the northeast part, but through Belgium, which did not have a defended border with France. And then the German troops were supposed to march not to Paris, but south around the French armies, and surround the French armies from the south, the west, and the other German armies in the east, and forced the French to surrender within five weeks, six weeks. The Schlieffen plan was carried out to a, an extent, and it might have worked, except some uh, more things happened. There were all these alliances we mentioned the Triple Alliance and the Triple Entente, which wasn't a formal alliance, but was, in fact, one. But there was one uh, alliance that Britain had that was 
a if you you know if you're attacked, we will come and help you. And that was with Belgium. Britain had pledged long in the 19th century to defend Belgium in case Germany attacked. And it was a written treaty. There was no question about it. And the Germans ignored it. Because the Schlieffen plan would not work if Germany had to fight the French at a defended, uh, where there were forts and fortifications. Germany had to go through Belgium to make the Schlieffen plan have a chance of working. So here's what happened. I'll give you the the steps toward war. The assassination was on June 28th of 1914. In July, Austria-Hungary issued its ultimatum to Serbia, which basically told Serbia that we're going to take you over, and if you don't agree to it, we'll attack you. And this was backed by Germany. All right? As soon as that happened, Serbia went to Russia and asked for Russian support. And Russia, on August 1st, 1914, backed Serbia and began to mobilize its troops. Germany, the same day, hearing about Russia's mobilization, began to mobilize its troops, but not to attack Russia. The intention was to get their troops ready to fight France and you uh, put the Schlieffen plan into operation. That was August 1st. The ultimatum versus Serbia was uh, Serbia did not accept. And on August 20, on July, rather, July 28th, Austria-Hungary invaded Serbia. Well, Russia immediately declared war on Austria-Hungary. And Russia had an alliance with France. When Russia declared war on Austria-Hungary and Germany declared war on Russia, Germany then on August 3rd declared war on France. Meanwhile, the German troops were already marching. And on August 4th, they entered Belgian territory on the way to France to put the Schlieffen plan in operation. And on that same day, Britain decided that it could not uh, not um, follow through on its obligation to protect Belgium. Otherwise, it would have no credibility among anybody else. Nobody would ever trust it again. And so the British declared war on Germany on August the 4th. Within, what was it, five weeks of the assassination in Sarajevo, the unthinkable was not only thinkable, was a fact. The war had broken out involving all the great powers, France, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, and Great Britain, all at war, whereas five weeks before, nobody believed there'd ever be a war. Well, that's how it started. The Schlieffen Plan would have worked, perhaps, if it had been followed completely. The German armies made great progress through Belgium and you know, went down the coast along the English Channel, as they were supposed to do, and turned southwards and marched past Paris. But at that point, the French began to retreat towards Paris. And the German general who had the 
unforgettable name of von Kluck, uh, which probably was Kluck in German, I guess. I don't know. But uh, in English, it looks like von Kluck. <laughs> and von Kluck may have given the world uh, the English term, you're a dumb Kluck, because he followed the French troops who were receding, repeat, uh, re, uh, retreating, defying his orders not to do so and continue further south. Well, the French came out from Paris and met von Kluck and his troops and stopped them cold at the Battle of the Marne. Um, that was in September in 1914. And so the Schlieffen Plan failed to conquer France in 40 days. As a matter of fact, for the next three and a half years, the lines between the German armies and the French armies hardly changed on the Western Front. Trench warfare of the kind that we saw first in the American Civil War uh, became the kind of war that was fought on the Western Front for the rest of the war. The casualties were unbelievable. On one day at the Somme, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, which was 1916, Britain alone lost 60,000 men in one day. More than a million soldiers were killed, wounded, or captured in the Battle of the Somme on both sides. More than a million. In fact, France lost 315,000 people at Verdun. That was even before the Somme, the same year. Uh, meanwhile, the Schlieffen Plan might have worked, but uh, it didn't. And at the same time, von Schlieffen's idea that Russia would not be able to mobilize quickly turned out to be not quite what he thought it was. So at the same time the Germans were fighting in France, they sent an army to East Prussia and defeated a Russian army there with a horrible slaughter. Uh, at the Battle of Tannenberg. So within the first month of the war, the casualties were like something nobody had ever seen before in history. And it was, be, uh, it was just appalling uh, what was happening. And this war continued for four years. The cost in lives, nine million soldiers were killed on both sides in the war. Nine million soldiers, six million non-combatants, just ordinary citizens. Fifteen million people were killed in the four years of the war. France lost two million men. A whole generation of Frenchmen was wiped out in the war. Germany, the, almost the same, but Germany had a much faster and bigger, pop, faster growing and bigger population, and had had since 1870. And that was what uh, France was most afraid of, because Germany uh, was growing, the population was growing much faster than their population. So the cost of the war in those terms was enormous. It not only did that, it did a lot of other things. I'm not going to go further with the strategy of the war right now, but I do want to talk about some of the long-term outcomes. The first and perhaps most important long-term outcome was the decline of the British Empire. Britain lost customers when Russia and France couldn't buy their goods anymore. They also had to liquidate a lot of their foreign investments, particularly in the United States, 
because they needed the money to fight the war. And the British Empire survived World War One, but was never as invincible again. Britain fought well in World War Two and held off the Nazis, but at uh, the cost of the empire, really. Secondly, the rise of the United States to status of a great power. Up until the United States got into World War One, we had never gone to war in Europe. You know, we um, were an isolationist nation. But the German submarine attacks on neutral shipping, including the Lusitania, and the Zimmerman telegram, uh, where the foreign minister of Germany sent a telegram to the government of Mexico saying that if Mexico would attack the United States and Germany won the war, Mexico would get California back. Uh, unfortunately, the Germans didn't realize that they sent the telegram over a cable that the British were were watching. <laughs> the British read the telegram when it was sent and held on to it for a couple of years until the right time appeared and then released the Zimmerman telegram and caused the United States to tumble into the war. Uh, read Barbara Tuckman's wonderful book on the Zimmerman telegram. It's fascinating. All right, third, the revolution in Russia brought communism to the world. Russia dropped out of the war in December 1917, and the Bolshevik Revolution took place. The Tsar was executed with his family in July of 1918, and uh, Russia became a um, communist dictatorship, first under Lenin, and then much more seriously under Joseph Stalin. And the Soviet Union appeared as the second great power in the world, after World War II. Um, and, of course, uh, the Soviet Union did not have good relations with the United States all that time either. Third, or is it fourth? Uh, Germany was humiliated by the war, uh, forced to sign an armistice in 1918, and the apologists said, oh, no, Germany wasn't defeated. It was stabbed in the back. And that was what brought Adolf Hitler to power in Germany 15 years later. And, of course, Hitler not only brought us World War II, which killed another 60 or 70 million people, he also brought anti-Semitism to the ultimate extreme by murdering 6 million Jews. The result of that was the foundation of the State of Israel in 1948, and the reaction to that meant that anti-Semitism, which had been primarily a European phenomenon, became uh, rampant in the Muslim world. And I don't know if you saw it, but just about a, maybe a month or two ago, uh, the American Jewish Committee, I believe it was, took a census of asking people all over the world what they thought of Jews. And in the Muslim world, up to 90% of the people in some Muslim countries uh, were deemed to be by the questions that they answered, by the answers, anti-Semitic. Uh, on the other hand, in the United States, the the uh, phenomenon of anti-Semitism is rapidly declining, uh, down to nine percent of the population. Anyway, that was all the result of World War One. And then what else? In Asia, 
Japan entered the war on the side of the Allies. And Japan was the one country in the war that benefited most from fighting on the Allied side. She got control of a number of territories that Germany had colonized. I think the Marshalls, uh, Marshall Islands for one. And Japan hardly suffered any damage whatsoever. So the Japanese got the idea that, uh, well, we're on the rise. we got a role going here, and began thinking about dominating the Pacific. And what kept the Japanese from dominating the Pacific? Nothing but the American Navy. And the outgrowth of World War I in that sense was the eventual Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor 23 years later. Finally, the decline of France from the status of a great power to the status of only a regional power in Europe. The French never recovered from the losses of World War I and uh, have not recovered to this day from World War I. Also, the French prestige as a military power was badly damaged in the Franco-Prussian War of 1871. And while the French armies fought hard and fought well, they lost so many men that France no longer qualified as a major power. And within 20 years, 1940, France collapsed ignobly after Germany attacked again. This time, the French did not fight well. They didn't. Uh, they were not able to withstand the Germans at all. And France was occupied for four years, four and a half years. Anyway, all of those things came out of World War One. We're still, in that sense, seeing the effects of the First World War today. And all of this happened, it was all touched off by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie Schotek on June 28, 1914. Would there have been war had the assassination not happened? The answer to that, of course, nobody can know. There had been crises before that didn't result in war, but the pressure was building continually. And if it hadn't been Sarajevo, who knows, it might have been somewhere else, it might have been anything. But uh, that's what happened as we know it, and it all began with the car being pushed backwards right into the place where that real Princip was standing. You might ask what happened to Princip. Because he was a minor, he was tried and convicted of the assassination, but did not get a death penalty because he was 19 years old. And he went to prison for 20 years and died of tuberculosis while in prison. And that's the end of that story. Well, Ira, as usual, a great presentation. Let's see if we have any questions, please. Couple of Sorry, I can't hear you, Bob. Let's see if we have any questions from oh, the uh, audience. Yeah, of course. Nobody's got any questions. No questions today? Boy, either I ever put, I I wondered, I put everybody I, uh, to sleep or uh, this was uh, so fascinating that you got nothing to say. <laughs> oh, this is Sherry. I have a question, actually. Um, I don't know if you've read it. I think her name is Margaret McMillan. She wrote a book yeah. about the seven days after, you know, the negotiations after World War One, And she seems to be the only historian that postulates that Nazi Germany was not a direct result of those negotiations. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on oh, that. Oh, you mean the Versailles Treaty? Right. Uh, I think, obviously, it wasn't the only thing, but Hitler used it, and used it well to uh, get support for him. 
for himself. Uh, by attacking the Versailles Treaty, he made Germans feel that, uh, gee, maybe we aren't so bad after all. It, w- it wasn't our fault. Uh, they imposed this terrible treaty on us. Uh, we're really all right. And um, here is Herr Hitler telling us so we can be a great power again. And didn't Belgium, King Albert, and his uh, people slow the Germans down? Or am I, am I having out the wrong war? When they went to Belgium... Didn't they slow them down a little bit, the German army? And when? What are you talking about, Bob? King Albert, I thought, and the Belgians were quite heroic in trying to oh, slow down the Germans. The Belgian army fought well, for, but only for a few days. Okay. They couldn't possibly hold off Germany. Okay. Uh, what was a surprise is that the Serbians defeated the Austrians three different times. And Serbia, a little country, humiliated the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, Austria-Hungary took huge casualties. And then later, Austria-Hungary fought Italy. Uh, Italy entered the war, as I mentioned before, trying to get territory from Austria-Hungary, but suffered terrible casualties. And if you uh, want to read about that war, uh, Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway mm-hmm. tells of uh, an American who, is, uh, who speaks Italian who becomes an ambulance driver from the Italian army fighting the Austro-Hungarians and the East, that front, uh, the Italian front against Austro-Hungary. Well, I really want to thank you so much. You may want to consider, you know, aftermath, the League of Nations and all that stuff. That's up to you, though. We, I really enjoyed this analysis of history. When you went back to Spain, I said, where are we? But I understand that you've got to know the past in order to appreciate the present and the future. Well, that's the reason why history is so important. Yeah, that's your lesson that I got here. And Ira, thank you so much, and thank you to our audience. All right. Thank you, Bob. I'll be in touch. Thank you. Okay. This was really interesting. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.